Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What is up on a Thursday? I am Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. We got a great guest today, former Ole Miss baseball pitcher Sean Johnson. That's right, the big lanky fellow. Pitched at Ole Miss from 2016 and 17. We uh, he is now a world long drive professional. Uh, I stumbled upon him one of his videos randomly on TikTok. Texted him as I did a story on him way back when when he pitched for Ole Miss, and he wanted to hop on the pod within the hour. So we just chopped it up about his career at Ole Miss, his journey through minor league baseball, and how he found his way to becoming a world long drive professional. Made the world championships in his first try three months into picking up the sport. Really interesting guy. Really great dude. Enjoy talking and reconnecting with Sean Johnson. So I think you'll enjoy this interview. But before we get to that, though, I want to take a quick break to remind you. The podcast is brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website. The inventors at the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Look, the proof is in the pudding. It's bowl season. You've got college basketball hitting full swing. Uh, Skybox's bowl packages on the sky. Last weekend, Thursday through Sunday, Skybox went 39 and 16 in college basketball for 57 and a half units up. 57 and a half went undefeated in their NCAA football plays and three and two in the NFL. Guess who didn't do that? You who did not use Skybox sports picks. It's time to stop paying the bookie. You need to start asking him to pay you, asking him where your supplementary income is coming from. Go online, skyboxsportspicks.com. Sign up for a picks package. You can try it sports-centric, all sports. You can try it for a day, a week, a month. I'd recommend going ahead and signing up for the year-long all-access pass. That way you can profit 57 units in a weekend and basically just retire. And then, boom, you're all set. All you have to do is go online, select the picks package, use the promo code RIPPY, R-I-P-P-E-E. That'll get you 20% off any purchase. They'll send you an email with the picks in a color-coded spreadsheet by unit. Very well categorized, very professional, and you're better equipped to profit in the long run than you were before trying Skybox. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com, and use that promo code RIPPY, R-I-P-P-E-E, because that'll let them know we sent you. Podcast is also brought to you by LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. Go see Greg if you're a Rippy Wright subscriber. That's rippywrights.substack.com. You get the new Rippy Wright special. It is three six-ounce bacon wrap fillets for 20 bucks. That's about a $40 valuation that you're getting a half off. Three steaks to kick off your grilling weekend. Just show Greg proof of subscription, and boom, he'll get you set up. Then go find all of your own favorites. Scott, uh, Oxford is so lucky to have a place like LB's. It's the best butcher shop in the world. All kinds of delicious uh, sausages, seafood. I love the tri-tips, all kinds of great cuts there. Greg wants to make your grilling experience great. It's just a crown jewel in Oxford. You need to check them out. It's a bucket list destination. Check them out. LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. All right. Here is former Ole Miss baseball pitcher and current world long drive professional, Sean Johnson. All right. We now welcome on former Ole Miss pitcher, current long drive professional athlete, Sean Johnson. This is uh pretty nuts how this happened. So we, uh, we knew each other because I wrote a story on you when you first got to Ole Miss. Hell, that was like six years ago at this point, as I learned from our DMs, as I reached back out to you. I'm sitting there at work today as we record this on a Wednesday, scrolling through TikTok as I'm waiting for some file to load. I see a video 
that's you just ripping a nuke on a driving range. I click on it. It's like Sean Johnson, like professional world or a long drive athlete. I was like, damn, this kind of looks like the same guy. I see the Ole Miss hoodie in another video. I was like, this is. So I reach out to you. <laughs> and then you're like, you know what? Tonight's actually the best night to do this. Let's just go ahead and knock this out now. So here we are like three hours later total. How are you, man? I appreciate you joining us. Yeah, man. Good to be here. I'm excited to do this. All right, so let's start with a little bit of background. We'll get to the long drop stuff in a second, but you mentioned to me before we started recording, you're out in Sacramento, you're selling wine. That's pretty cool. Sales gigs are always pretty awesome. Kind of tell me how you ended up out there. Yeah, so uh, I was actually playing independent baseball, and one of my buddies, Sam uh, Sam Curtis, he was training at a facility called Optimum Athletes, and they were kind of doing the driveline thing, but it wasn't the cost of actually going to driveline. And it's with a guy, Ryan Matthews, who was teaching everything. He trained at driveline, got driveline certified. And it was something that I wanted to invest myself in. Um, so I kind of came out to Sacramento and started training uh, to continue playing independent baseball and hopefully get back into an affiliated organization. That's awesome. So let's rewind a little bit to your old Miss career. Cause honestly, I wrote that story so long ago. It's actually funny. Mm. I was just starting out as a writer. That was like the first front page story I'd ever written. My roommates at the time, uh, just like half-ass hung it on our college house wall. So that was a big <laughs> uh, ego boost for me at the time. You had just recovered from Tommy John surgery. You were coming back to the mound, I believe basically less than a year later, you were Ole Miss's Sunday starter on opening weekend that weekend but let's back it up a little bit for that because i know we talked about this for the story but just to kind of refresh people's memory how did you end up at Ole miss you come from juco in iowa yeah. you'd been in durango colorado i believe you're in oklahoma uh before that kind of take me through your path to Ole miss uh wow that's a long time ago <laughs> i feel old now I, do, I really do um yeah i grew up born in oklahoma grew up in durango uh, sent off to boarding school to go play hockey in Colorado Springs and then uh, grew a ton and started throwing baseballs pretty hard. So I wasn't so sure about the hockey path. Uh, got some offers to play Division three. Uh, didn't re didn't really want to go to Wisconsin to play Division three hockey and baseball. Um, and then Iowa Western came along and it was like the number one Juco program in the entire nation. And I was like, I mean, that sounds pretty cool. I I'd like to go do that. Um, got out there and put on 20 pounds and started throwing 94 and uh, got drafted by the Chicago Cubs in the 31st round. Uh, decided to go back to school and it was a good decision because we won a national championship that year in 2014. Uh, and then that led me uh, to being signed by the Rebels and heading over to Ole Miss. I knew you were a hockey guy leading into it. I uh, I, I did not have the fortune of a growth spurt. I am not 6'7", to say the least. I, uh, one of the many times I've recognized that is when we sat outside Swayze that day. And, like, we sat down somewhere outside the stadium. And I was like, shit, do I need to stand up, like, to get to this guy? Like, and so you were – background as a hockey guy. You mentioned getting drafted by the Chicago Cubs in the uh, 31st round. I actually listened to another podcast you did regarding the long drive thing on my drive home from work today. And you're talking about you kind of seriously considered the offer so you're a kid that moved from Oklahoma to Durango you go to boarding school for hockey like that's not like your typical path do you think like the juco route for baseball is just because you got such a late start into it where you have kids in seventh and eighth grade that are now committing yeah. to schools and stuff like that where yeah. you're a two-sport guy baseball comes on late do you think the juco path um maybe came because you got a little bit of a late start compared to some other kids in baseball in terms of like being a prospect 
Yeah, that's actually funny you say that because one thing I always talk about with people is like, I wonder, I wonder what my baseball career or maybe even football career would have been like if I grew up in Oklahoma instead of Colorado, you know, because I invested yeah. myself so much in hockey and it wasn't like I was playing baseball year round. I played baseball in the summer and that was about it. And then picked up some golf clubs and then it was hockey season again. Um, so it was for me, Juco was a great first start because it allowed me to get the playing time instead of going. I had a division one offer from like Florida International and I, I would have gone there and sat the bench. That's just all there is to it. So it was a great opportunity for me to actually go grow in the sport of baseball because I was behind. I, I mean, I never went to any of the perfect games or, or prospect stuff like that. Um, baseball was just literally a summer, a summer thing and a spring thing. And that was about it. Yeah. That's pretty crazy. Wasn't your first start. Was that FAU or FIU? That's kind of, it was uh, FIU. Yeah. yeah, That's cool. kind of uh, coming full circle there. That's pretty yeah. nice. I, I went I went over and said, what's up to Don Turtle before, before <laughs> the game. It was awesome. That is pretty awesome. So yeah. everyone always gets asked this question. It's like the famous Sinquez Golson line. If you don't want to go miss, don't take a visit. But your kid <laughs> coming from out of JUCO, you're obviously a very highly touted kid. One of the things I heard you talk about that was interesting that I've heard a lot is like in JUCO, there really are no rules. There's no NCAA practice time stuff. You pretty much can do whatever the hell you want. Some of the football recruiting stories out of that are just absolutely bananas. <laughs> um but you can kind of spend basically all your time like kind of molding your craft into baseball. So you come out of there, obviously a much more highly touted prospect. You had a bunch of interest. If I remember correctly, Oklahoma was actually maybe your number two. What led you to choosing Ole Miss as opposed to another place? Um, it was a brand new head coach over at Oklahoma. And I wasn't exactly sure about the culture there. And like you said, I went on a visit to Ole Miss and, they brought us, it was pouring rain outside. They brought us up to uh, the diamond club where you can look out of the glass windows over the whole stadium. And I was like, yeah, I think this is where I'm going to play baseball. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. So you get there, the hockey piece of this. So it's actually, I've learned a lot about hockey. I'd say in the last couple of years. So when I was a kid, I grew up going to Preds games. My grand, I'm from Jackson, Mississippi. My grandparents oh. lived in Nashville. The Preds had just gotten the team back then. So they were, now it's the hottest ticket in town. Back then they were just giving away those tickets and you go to the games and it would be like half Red Wings fans or whoever they were playing that night, Northern Transplants, <laughs> some Preds fans, and then some people who just didn't really give a shit. But like, I got to see a bunch of stuff up close and then I moved to Dallas and I've like grew to love hockey so much out before I moved back to Oxford in July, I was actually going to go in on a half season ticket package with a buddy of mine out there and just like go to all the games. <laughs> Six, seven on skates. What, what is your role in hockey? I were you a defenseman? Do I remember this correctly? Are you just punishing guys left and right? What is that like? I was, I was skinny. Don't forget that. Okay. I was a skinny kid growing up. Um, I just kept growing up and not out. And uh, it wasn't until college where I actually started growing out a little bit. But I was more of an offensive defenseman. I like I like to get in on the rush, and um, I always wanted to play forward, but coaches just wouldn't let me because I could skate faster backwards than I could forwards. And uh, it, it, the long stick helped play defense, that's for sure. <laughs> What's the slap shot like? Was it pretty – that had to be pretty mean. My slap shot was good. Yeah, my slap shot was – I'd say it was known around the league. <laughs> okay, that's pretty awesome. Um, I actually wanted to get a, a pocket radar and go take some slap shots and see what I can get up to nowadays. 
Oh, you definitely need to do that. I bet yeah. that would be some happy Gilmore type numbers. <laughs> so you mentioned the hockey piece of it. You go to boarding school to play hockey, yeah. and then all of a sudden you pivot to baseball. And look, like if you go to a boarding school to go play a sport, that's kind of your path, right? I mean, like oh, I yeah. guess the extreme of that would be like Earl Woods and Tiger Woods. But like when you go to do something to play like a sport, that's kind of what you do. And you mentioned some D2, D3 offers out of uh, high school for hockey. I think what a lot of people may not realize is D2, like if you get like a D2, D3 football offer, it's like, all right, this guy, probably pretty good athlete, probably just holding on to a dream there. That's not the case in hockey. And the reason I know that is my best friend who I referenced earlier hung that story up at the house <laughs> is an agent. And when he was first starting out, one of the, uh, he moved to Boston with his fiance. And okay. one of the first guys he was, he's just trying to get anyone he can. He got a couple of D3 hockey players at Suffolk University there in Boston. And I had a kid on the podcast last year, which is one of my favorite any interviews I've ever done because I just peppered him with stupid questions about hockey, which I'll do with <laughs> you in a second about the long drive. But one of the things I learned is D2, D3 hockey, that's not the same drop-off. That's not the same like, oh, they're not actually very good. Dudes go pro from D2 and D3 all the time because different oh, yeah. programs and stuff like that, it, the entire sport is just structured differently. So D3 offer, that's a little bit has more juice to it than maybe some people might think. How hard was it to give up on the hockey thing for baseball, if that makes sense? Um, it's it's interesting you say that because that's one thing that I reference a lot when I'm talking about this is the average Division One college freshman for hockey is like 21 years old. Yeah. So if, if you don't go play D3 or D2 or D1, you're going to play junior hockey which is you're paying to play hockey and get your teeth knocked out to hopefully get a division one scholarship. In a couple which is of years. nuts. I learned in that they can trade you and stuff. The junior oh, yeah. hockey stuff is wild. It's crazy. It is absolutely nuts. And because they can't pay you, right? right. They can't pay you because you can't get paid before you went to the NCAA. I don't know how that works now. But they treat you like different. professional athletes, but, but yeah. you're paying them, which is just yeah. wild to me. Like the Vala Cat could, it was like, yeah, you can get traded in that stuff. I was like, how does that work? Like, <laughs> which is nuts. But anyway, I derailed you. Go ahead. Yeah. So, uh, so it was the schools Wisconsin Superior, and they were like, they were loving me for baseball, and I was kind of, it was a good hockey program, very good Division three hockey program, always made the Final Four, and they were kind of on the verge of like. I'm not a hundred percent sure if you can make our hockey team or not. And it was kind of, that was kind of the turnoff for me at that point when it was like, dang, like, I know it's a really good division three school. Like guys go pro out of this division three school, but I don't know if that's like for me, I don't know if that's what I want to do and play, play baseball in Wisconsin. I don't know if I, wanna, I don't know if I want to do that. So uh, it came down to when Iowa Western offered me out of high school uh, there was a chance for me to play for the Omaha, I believe they're called the Lancers, which okay. is a junior program out there. And I was like, okay, great. I can do junior college, junior college baseball, and I can go play for the Lancers. And I very quickly found out that my job was baseball when I got to the junior college. <laughs> so uh, that dream never happened, but I had intentions of doing it. It just unfortunately never happened. So you come to Ole Miss you start out as the Sunday starter. I believe you had a very good start that clinched the series against a, I think that number two, number one ranked team against Louisville that second yeah. or third weekend of the season. Yeah. But you're less than a year off the Tommy John piece of it. 
And then you you had another elbow hang up or something injury wise after that happened, correct? Like take me through the process of finally getting back on the field because it's been a while. Then you kind of sat out again, and then it didn't seem like things were the same from an arm standpoint. Take me through just what that was like for you throughout that process. Yeah, it was it was kind of unfortunate, you know. Um, I started the season off pretty well. I wouldn't say it was my best work, but I thought I was I was doing a job pretty well. We were getting some wins on the Sundays, and uh, I was going, I was trending up, and then all of a sudden, I got to about a month and a half into the season, kind of started into SEC play. And you could just see my velocity and command start to diminish. And uh, it was it was completely just not being physically ready for a starting role. Um, I'd, I'd like to think if things were a little different, um, maybe a reliever role would have been better for me. Um, I, I just wasn't able to withstand the, the starting role with the shape my arm was in. What is that like for you as an athlete? Because that's one of the things that like people out there listening, myself included, I'm very interested in because it's something we'll never experience. But like for you, when that velocity starts to diminish and it becomes clear that like, hey, something's kind of off here. Can you sense it physically? Did you feel physically fine, but the ball's not just coming out with the same velocity? Like that would almost make it more frustrating to me. Could you sense an elbow issue or did you feel fine and it just wasn't happening? It, I felt fine. It just wasn't there. That's like, it's, it's really hard that to would say, drive me but, insane. but it's just like, it's like, uh, I don't know if it's a mental block or what it is, but it's, it's just not there. And so you were an older guy when you came in. And one of the things I always very much respected about you was when things didn't go that well, and you had the health issues, particularly with like the elbow and stuff like that is you became like the ultimate teammate. I mean, you had all kinds of energy in the dugout. You were a huge piece of those, like that 16 year and then that 17 year, definitely, despite it not necessarily working out for you personally. And you're an older guy at that point. You went to JUCO. I mean, to the lack of a better phrase, you could have just been like, fuck this, like whatever, I'll ride this out. Like, this just hasn't worked out for me. But that's not really the path you chose at all. You were as engaged as anybody uh, you know, within the stadium on a game by game basis. Um, and it was very valuable. You need that in college baseball. And I think, uh, you know, most of the people out there listening will understand that big old miss baseball people is like, you need that. Like, even if you're not necessarily contributing on the field, you need that kind of energy, uh, particularly in like the doldrums of late sec West play and things like that. What like was there a turning point for you? Was there a decision you had to make to remain engaged, even though it wasn't working out for you? Because it's not like you sucked; it just wasn't physically holding up. And so I'm just yeah. curious: like, did you have to come to a point where you're like I just got to give them whatever I can, even if this is not working out how I envisioned? Yeah, I mean, you can do the easy things well. You know, it's it's sometimes the hardest things are are the easiest things to do. Sometimes the easiest things are the easiest things to do. And being a teammate is the absolute easiest thing to do. It's, it's old miss baseball and it's not going to last forever. So you just got to make the most of it and play your role, whatever it is. And that last year in 17, I believe you guys were playing. This will test my memory. I think ULM um, and you start yeah. and you take a no hitter into the seventh inning it was really a masterful performance. And like watching you juxtapose, to that initial start against FIU where your velo's up, you're a totally different pitcher by that point in 17. 
and again, I know it that you you'd endured like a long, frustrating piece of your career to that point. But what was it like to have that moment? Because I I believe we talked to you after the game. I'm sure we did. There was yeah. no other storyline after that one. But yeah. I just remember feeling very gratified that you got to have that moment because you endured a lot of shit outside of your control. And then to just to be able to have that moment where you're dominant on a mound for seven innings again, what was yeah. that day like for you? That was that was a crazy day because that that was just a, a long season for me. Um, I started the season with with a fractured hand. Yeah, I, I, I forgot I about that. First, yeah, I missed the first couple weekends of playoff or of this of the season, and then my my personal thought was I wanted to be a reliever and try and see if I could bring that velo back, start to bring my arm back. And Coach Bianco always saw me as a starter. That's just what he brought me in to do is be a starter. And he always wanted to put me in that role. And like I always said, like whatever role I get to play, I'm going to be fine playing it. And uh, I, I finally got back in. And the first first time out, he threw me in as a starter against Memphis. Um, and then down, he just – it was like spot starts. It was like let's just – like let's try and get Sean wherever we can, say – save his arm as much as we can, let him build it back up. And then we got to that ULM game. And I just like having a dominating performance like that was just like everything that I had been working for. And, and it felt like I was back. Unfortunately, <laughs> I had a worse game against uh, Little Rock, Arkansas uh, a couple of weeks down the road, but um, that, that was a good performance. Um, Unfortunately, we didn't take the no hitter all the way, but but I just loved being out there doing that. That was fun. Did you have to approach pitching differently? Because like velo wise, you'd come back a little bit, but it wasn't like what you started. Where you're this big six seven kid that's up in the you know, the mid nineties, and then all of a sudden, because of the health piece of it, you're kind of back in the high eighties again. Did you have to learn how to pitch again? Because I imagine at that point in your career, JUCO, you start as the Sunday starter, you have the health pieces of it. And then all of a sudden you're just having to learn a different way to pitch. It seemed like to yeah. some degree, did you have to relearn kind of how to approach things when that strictly velo is not there? Cause velo is not everything, but yeah. it is a lot. And it basically changes things when it drops. I'm just curious, like how frustrating or whatever the case may be, like how, how was it trying to learn how to pitch differently after all of that, when it's something you can't really help? Yeah. I mean, frustrating is a very good word for that. <laughs> um, but it's, it's just, the one thing I always knew how to do was compete and whatever I had on that day, I was going to beat the person in the box and I stopped throwing straight pitches and started throwing everything that moved and a heck of a lot of sliders. <laughs> I had a good slider. So I threw it about 75% of the time and uh, people would roll over it and pop it up and swing through it. And the fastball would be a surprise and it would work out every once in a while. <laughs> So last thing before we get into the long drive piece of it, they win the national championship this year. You're a proud alum. You're a former national championship champion at the JUCO level, which is no nothing to scoff at. That is a tough level of baseball. A lot of pros out there. I'm just curious, like how gratifying was it? You Because like for me, <laughs> I joke about this all the time. Mike and I would say I we had a prickly personal relationship. He used to just yell at me all the time, even though <laughs> I didn't think the question was that bad. Um, but even despite all of that, I've now moved out of that role full time. I work in marketing. I do this on the side, but just watching from afar and watching as a fan in the stands, I was in Omaha. I was very gratified for Mike Bianco. I would say there's probably no one in the sport that deserves it as much as he does. 
And it kind of came in like the perfect way because it, it, for all intents and purposes, that guy was basically fired at the beginning of May. They were <laughs> seven and 14. That was the worst SEC record he'd ever had. They'd had the two super regional slip ups. And then all of a sudden this just group of dudes just tears through the postseason and wins the whole thing. And just seeing him have that moment with his wife on the field afterwards, it was just very gratifying to watch. I'm just curious as an Ole Miss baseball alum, you get in, you probably know the history of it, right? Not being able to get over the hump. So not only get over the hump and go back to Omaha, but win the whole damn thing. What was that like for you to watch? Oh, for, well, first off, the Rebs and the Colorado Avalanche both yeah, won the say, that's a big year for you. Day. And I was going crazy. That was the best day ever for me. <laughs> but, uh, oh, man, that's just – that's just – that's literally the definition of Rebs, like being relentless – pursuing excellence, you know, having the belief and being selfless, like that's just all it is. I mean, it's a group of guys who came together and believed in themselves when the Reds got hot. When the Reds get hot, you can't stop them. And, uh, I mean, that that's amazing to watch. And and for Coach P, that's, that's the best thing that could have ever happened for him. When you're in the program and you're a player, you're probably – you guys obviously are not like looking at your spread like, – looking at a scouting report in the postseason – and being like, oh, we haven't been to Omaha since X, or we haven't done this, or we're one in seven in super regional games. But I imagine to some degree, when you're an alum and you're removed from the program, like, did you ever, because you probably learned the history of it as you, when you were in the program, were like, damn, like, this is a really good program, but it is kind of nuts, like how they couldn't get over the hump. It's almost like a statistical anomaly. Like, oh, yeah. did you, did you ever think about that? And then to see them do it, obviously, is pretty cool. But I'm just curious when you got like a year or two removed from it, you're like, damn, this is a really good program. This guy runs this the right way. Like, how is this not translating to more postseason success? No, it's, it's almost like a curse. It's like we need to go yeah. back in history and find out if someone cursed it because that was like the Red Sox winning the World Series and breaking the Babe Ruth curse. Um, it's just like I remember, what was it, 2000, I want to say 16, we were playing Tulane in the playoffs at home. Yeah. And, and it's Will Stokes on the mound, and he – he throws 97 in on this guy's hand and, and we're up by one run top of the ninth. And, and he throws 97 in on this guy's hands. He like pulls it foul for a home run. Then somehow spits on an 85 mile an hour slider, just perfect execution. And then he comes back 97 in on the hands and the guy pulls it for a, a two run home run to go up. It's like, you can't make that stuff up. Like it, it, was, right. it was, it was, it's like a curse. I'm telling you. It's nuts, right? That whole year was crazy because you guys got screwed out of being a national seed. Y'all should have gotten it over LSU that year. It really made no sense other than just the purple and gold on the jerseys. But you're right. Like that Jake Rogers kid, the catcher that hit the home run, really damn good player. But it's like you got Will Stokes on the mound. Like, how does this happen? And then not to mention, <laughs> you're the one team that were right outside the national seed. So you're like the best host that's not a national seed. And your four seed is Pac-12 champion Utah. It's like, how, how does that work? Like, how in the world does that actually happen? I've never actually seen that before. You're right. I mean, all these people used to ask us, like, what's going wrong? What's he doing wrong? It's like, they're not really doing anything wrong. It's just uh, happening. And luck finally baseball. kind of fell back in their favor. And I'm very glad for that. So you leave Ole Miss. You do independent ball for a bit. Oh. Yeah. Take me through the path up of independent ball to what you're doing now. Obviously, you have the sales job, but you're now a world-long drive or a long drive professional. How does that happen? Yeah, so uh, I actually signed a free agency with the Houston Astros uh, after my 2017 senior year. And they flew me out to Florida, uh, went through all the physicals, 
went to sleep that night, woke up the next morning, uh, got to the facility and they said I didn't pass my MRI and they had a plane ticket and 60 bucks for me. And I was on my way to the airport. (laughs) Yeah, Um, I had a calcification in my elbow uh, that that was infused into my ligament. Um, And they said, that's a no go. Um, Wouldn't let me throw. I was like, can I at least go throw on the field? And they're like, nope, you're a liability. Uh, (laughs) So I was on my way back home and I was like, dang, I don't know what to do with my life. Uh, I thought I was about to play professional baseball. And at this point, I didn't know about independent baseball at all. Um, so I started looking into long drive and I bought a long drive club. I I always knew I could hit a golf ball far. Um, so I bought a long drive club and went to the world championship and, uh, tried to go through the qualifiers to make my way in and, uh, went OB out of bounds a lot, (laughs) a lot, a lot. Um, but I hit one drive at the end of the day that ended up being, like the third longest drive in my heat. And I was like, okay, like if I, if I learn how to hit a golf club, I can do this. And, uh, and then shortly after I got home and uh, Clint Stoy, my pitching coach from Iowa Western gives me a call and he's like, Hey, do you want to go play for this team top speed out in California? And he said that I could go out there, play for this guy. It was like a summer, summer college ball team. And he could help me get to an independent program. Um, so I was like, yeah, like any baseball opportunity there is absolutely. Um, so I went out to California and played for top speed for about four weeks. And I got a, I got signed by the empire league out in the Northeast. Um, it was the smallest independent league. It was like six, no, like six teams. Um, we were getting paid like $300 a month. And I came in like a week before the playoffs and got like three starts and then the season was over. And I think that league like went under or something. Um, so I'm at this point, like, okay, uh, now what do I do? <laughs> Cause I'm not going back there. Um, so I get signed by the Evansville Otters out of the frontier league. And this ugh, things just get worse and worse from here. Uh, <laughs> it was a, it was an up and down road in independent baseball. So I came in wanting to be a starter, but they put me in the bullpen as a long reliever. And I got about six innings, threw up like a three ERA, and they released me. And then I get picked up by a team out in California called the Pittsburgh Diamonds, and they want me to be their closer. So Uh, I drive all the way out from Evansville, Indiana to California to play for the Pittsburgh Diamonds in the Pacific Association. And (laughs) I play there for about two months as their closer and get picked up back in the Frontier League um, where you can make $600 a month instead of $300 a month. And and got picked up by the normal Corn Belters out of normal Indiana, I believe it is or no, normal Illinois, I think it is, and uh, finished the season with them. Then that team went bankrupt, never got paid, um, and the Gateway Grizzlies picked me up for the next season. So this is 2019 now, and I'm playing for the Gateway Grizzlies in the Frontier League. Uh, I come in trying to be a starter, and they make me a long reliever, and I last about four weeks with them. I think I got around – 10 to 15 innings with about a four year RA. 
and they sent me on my way. <laughs> so on my way back to the Pacific Association, I went uh, to play for the Napa Silverados. And I was like, the only way I'm playing baseball is as a starter. Like, I'm not doing this bullpen stuff anymore. I want to be a starter. Um, so fortunately, I, I got a starting role and played for them for about two months and got my velo back up to the low to mid 90s and uh, got picked back up by the uh, Lake Erie Crushers in the Frontier League. And that's where I spent the rest of that season. We clinched the playoffs and had a little playoff run. Um, almost made the championship. So that was 2019. And then come 2020, uh, I guess that was COVID, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So COVID happened. Um, I got off, I got an offer to go throw for the Cincinnati Reds, uh, three days before COVID happened. Uh, I was supposed to go. So COVID happened and I was supposed to throw the next day and, uh, I got a call and, and spring training got completely shut down. Um, so that opportunity fizzled. And then, uh, so just kept throwing baseballs through COVID. And then um, finally the season came around 2021 or was it 21 or 22? 21, I guess. 21, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so went back to Lake Erie Crushers and made about five starts with them and slipped on the mound and tore my leg room. Um, so baseball was, I was 27 by this point about to turn 28. And I was like, you know what? I think, I think this is the end of baseball for me. I'm, I'm about done making $600 a month. <laughs> so I, I have so many questions. I, I lied. We'll get to the long drive in a second. <laughs> that was, I, that was a long story. I'm sorry. About, no, it's amazing though. Like <laughs> baseball. So like, all right, one, we'll go rapid fire. Do you have pretty sick merch? You play for all these teams. Do oh, they yeah. let you keep the hats and stuff? I bet you have an incredible like hat and shirt collection. Oh yeah. Oh, I've got I've got shelves full of hats. It's that's amazing. Hats that would be worth something one day. I promise you that. Or it might not, be. like this is the coolest guy in town. Like I don't even know where this team <laughs> is, but that logo is sick. When you so going back to like the indie, like the going back to the Houston Astros piece of it, you get signed by the Astros. I imagine you're feeling a little better health wise. And then all of a sudden, like you said, you wake up, you have a plane ticket home, like 60 bucks. Like we can't even like sign you. You have such a great attitude about this in hindsight, but I imagine <laughs> that moment you're like, Jesus, dude, I can't catch a break. Like this is oh, yeah. kind of absurd. So when you, between the Astros thing and all your indie ball journeys, are you just trying to get to the next month and next week and is trying to enjoy playing baseball again? Because I get that you have dreams and you want to go get to an affiliated association and move your way back up. But you mentioned the age piece of it too. Like in long, in hindsight, it's a pretty long shot, even though, even if you get like fully healthy again, like what is that like keeping a good attitude and just trying to hold on to that despite all of this stuff happening that again is largely outside of your control. Like, are you just like, yeah. what the hell am I doing? Like, where am I? What is this? Like, what is indie ball like? No, I was just, I guess I was obsessed with the process and trying to get back to affiliate baseball. Just that was always my dream to play. Like ever since I stopped playing hockey and started playing baseball, I just put so much effort into it and saw such a big jump through college. And it was just like, I, I wanted to play baseball. That was all there was to, I didn't want to go get another job. I yeah. wanted my job to be baseball. I, I wanted to wake up in the morning and know I was going to train, not go to my eight to five, you know, um, I just, I just wanted to be a professional baseball player and whatever it took 
you know, getting healthy, whatever time it took in the gym, whatever mobility it took, whatever weights it took. I, I just wanted to put forth that effort and see if I could do it. What is indie ball like? Because you have dudes from all different walks of life in there. Um, when I was a kid, Jackson, before they got the Embraves, had the Jackson Senators. The Diamond Cats lasted like half a year, then they went bankrupt. Like indie <laughs> ball is a pretty weird life. Like just best you can describe what in, like what in, what is indie ball like? teammates locker room travel wherever you want to go with this what like what is that like some of your team speaks no english um you're living with you're living with host families um getting getting pb and j's for meals um the locker rooms weren't bad i won't i won't say there some locker rooms were pretty nice fields were fields were all turf um even the mound was turf couldn't wear metal spikes on it had to wear had to wear molds on them um because they don't do rainouts there the jackson team had oh no we're not paying for a grounds crew for rainouts just just mediocre that's that's all i'd say is just mediocre great level of baseball you know rookie to single a type baseball um some even better like i know the atlanta atlantic league is really good they compare that to double a triple a um, but just guys like you could be playing with a guy that's 45 and a guy I was gonna say the age range is nuts, right? It's not young prospects like that, right? Like you got oh, yeah. old dudes and young dudes. Oh yeah. It's insane. Like, like, oh, this guy spent six years in the big leagues, you know, he's just he's from Australia and just keeps playing so that he can pitch for Team Australia. Like stuff like that. It's nuts. Like, so I actually, funny you mentioned the Reds. I covered the Cincinnati Reds for an internship for MLB.com in 2018. And we were sitting up there in the press box one day and the, the Reds had a pitcher named Matt Latos who had been there for a while. He had gone down. I shit you not that day. Someone in the press box is like, is Matt Latos still in baseball? Like what's he doing? And literally three hours later, they make sports center because Matt Latos has instigated basically a small ride <laughs> in some indie league. Like I'm not talking like a bitch is clearing fight. Like we're oh, yeah. like fans are hanging over the cages. Like I want a piece of this guy. It's absolutely <laughs> wild stuff. And I was like, damn, indie ball seems like a hell of a trip. What's the craziest thing you saw in indie ball? Oh man. Craziest thing I saw. Um, there are some great ejections, some great manager ejections. Is that because they just don't give a shit? Up. I'd say I'd say it'd be the un, the most unbelievable calls you've ever seen by umpires. Okay. Like like just high school and division two umpires that are coming out and trying trying to watch 95. And it's like guys are throwing a curveball that, you know, he's got a big league curveball and he throws it right down the middle for a strike. Catcher doesn't move his glove and it's a ball. And everyone in the stadium's just like, you have got to be kidding me, right? Now. Just, just some of the most ridiculous. Like a guy steps on home plate, and he's like, "Oh, the guy didn't step on home plate. He's out." Just like the most ridiculous stuff we've ever seen. So you eventually get out of indie ball, and I can relate to this. This is probably a little bit of a stretch, but I was in journalism for four years after school. Like any other kid, I'm sure when I was talking to you, I was like, "I'm going to be a big fucking deal. I'm going to go on ESPN. <laughs> this is going to be awesome." And it just didn't work out that way. I was working in radio. I had a decent job. I'd say COVID hit. And at that point, I was kind of burnt out. I was trying to get out of the industry a little bit. My girlfriend was in Dallas. I was actually, you mentioned the you having the uh, the tryout for the Reds and then COVID hits. I had done a job interview in Dallas. 
um, on March 9th, which is actually my birthday. And then on uh-huh. March 10th, maybe the 11th, I'm driving back and I'm like, all right, that went pretty well. And then the world shuts down. And I was <laughs> like, all right, this probably isn't great. I don't think I'm going to get out here anytime soon. Like my God. So I'm just like, my God, I can't catch a break. And then finally I get out there, I leave sports reporting full time, which had become like a large part of my identity at that point. I like just yeah, kind of what I did it who I was. And I'm sitting there and, and like, I take a job um, in marketing for a renewable energy company that takes used cooking oil from restaurants and turns it into renewable diesel. I didn't <laughs> shit about renewable diesel when I got out there, but I was like, you know what? This is just a new chapter of life. I'm going to embrace it. And now I look up here two years later, I do this podcast full time. I have a larger audience than I've ever had in my life because of, you know, the opportunity Chase and Neil and Rivals gave me. I have this newsletter that's subscribed to pretty well. I get to write about whatever the hell I want to write about. I don't have to go sit sober with a bunch of nerds in a press box at games. It's like (laughs) the most ideal setup at all, but I'm leaving, packing up Oxford and leaving to go to Dallas at the time. I'm like, damn, I failed. Like this kind of sucks. Like I can't believe I didn't do this. But then two and a half years later, I'm like, I wouldn't have this any other way. This is kind of awesome. Like it's an incredible setup. And it's something you would never think in the moment as you're going through like the downside of things for you leaving baseball behind. But now you now have this new identity where you you have a good job in Sacramento. You're doing the long drive thing. You kind of regained a purpose. I read an Instagram post you wrote about kind of getting into the long drive piece of it. As you formulate this into a question, as you transitioned out of baseball and get into this, do you felt like that gave you a little bit of a renewed purpose again? Because you were so baseball, you were a hockey player, you were a baseball player for so long. And now you kind of have this outlet. You have a much more stable job. I'm sure a much more (laughs) living situation, independent ball. You got to be sitting there thinking this worked out okay. Whereas when you're riding a bus in indie ball, you're like, my God, is this ever going to happen? Do you feel that similar type of thought process at all? If that makes any sense? No, absolutely. It's just something that keeps me competitive and keeps my head on straight and keeps me going every day, you know, something to wake up and look forward to. Um, Being good at it helps. (laughs) That helps a lot. Um, but it's just, you know, some some to motivate me every day when I wake up. Yeah. And so that, that getting into it, I swear to God, I won't keep you all night, but we got 35 minutes <laughs> for I ask a single long drive question. So you get into this. Take me through the process of getting into this, because I feel like it's almost a joke with baseball players, right? They have a hell of a swing. They can all probably rip a drive and they're all like, oh, you could be a long drive guy. It's like, well, that's not actually how it works. Like what actually led to you getting into it? And you're like, hey, I can actually do this. I know you told the story earlier about yeah. going to one of those things ripping yeah. one drive and was like, Hey, I can actually do this. Yeah. But at what point did that become from like, Oh, okay, whatever. I'm a former baseball player that can really crank a drive to, I can actually do this. Like when yeah. did that happen? Um, so I was, it was right after I tore my labrum. It was like a couple weeks after. And I was like, you know, they say underhand stuff's not too bad. Let's see if I could swing it off. Okay. And <laughs> I'm literally like, at this point, I'm literally like, all right, baseball's over. Like, that's it's just not happening for me. I'm not going to take a, an entire year to rehab my shoulder. And at then, 27 years old? Yeah, 27 years old. And and then not even get to play the next season because my shoulder wouldn't even be ready. So trying to play professional baseball at 29 years old, making $600 a month, I don't, I don't think that's the right life decisions. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's a couple weeks after, and I start swinging a golf club. And – things are feeling all right. It doesn't feel too bad. So I just keep sticking with it and start moving through it and start getting faster and faster. Um, and I head back to Colorado, start working with a doctor back there. Um, 
seeing if I needed to get it fixed up, seeing what I could do. And that fortunately came out to, you know, get surgery if you want to throw baseball again. But if you don't go live the rest of your life and just rehab it. Okay. Um, so that's what I took with it and just rehab my shoulder and kept swinging golf clubs. And uh, it was August by then. And there was a long drive competition in Salt Lake City. And I was like, so this oh, is that- August of 21. This is August of 21. Okay, gotcha. So, so this is two months after, yeah, two months after I tore my labor. Okay. And uh, and I'm like, you know what? That's about eight hours away. I can make that trip in a day. So I, I wake up at like, I want to say 4 a.m. Where are you drive. living at this point? Like when you say eight hours away, are you living at yeah. home? Um, so I'm actually in Fort Collins with my grandparents. Um, my grandpa was a former knee surgeon, orth- orthopedic surgeon. And started this big clinic, um, so he's able to get me in there, and, and okay. that's where I was able to look at my shoulder and everything. Um, so it's an eight-hour drive to Salt Lake. So I wake up that morning, drive my eight hours, uh, go compete in the qualifiers. So make it through the local qualifier, and then it's the regional qualifier, and the winner makes it to the world championship. And I make it to like the quarterfinals. And if I would have just gone past that stage. I would have advanced to the world championships. And I was like, okay, like, I think I can actually do this. Like I was competing with all these guys today, competing to get into the world championship. Like, I think I can actually do this. With how much practice, how much practice did you actually had being a long drive person at that point? Are you just ripping it? I mean, with my long drive club, I'd say that's about five days of practice. Wow. Yeah. Cause I'm like easing into it, trying not to mess up my shoulder as I'm getting into it. And then it's like, okay, this competition's coming up. Let's pick up a driver and see what happens. And, uh, and my ball flight, like, like now I, I launched the ball at probably 15, 15 degree launch angle. Yeah. And we're talking, we're talking like a three degree launch angle and I'm just hitting lasers like 15 feet off the ground. And Which I'm is competing. great if you're playing around. That's not how it right, works. Right. <laughs> but a long drive competition, that's not exactly uh that's not exactly optimizing your, your launch angles. So, uh, so I was like, if I, if I go figure this out, if I go really truly learn how to swing a golf club and, and how to fly the golf ball, like, I think I can really compete with these guys. Um, so I got with the, I guess you can call him the long drive coach, um, Bobby Peterson at the one stop power shop out in North Carolina. And uh, I fly out to go see him and start getting some coaching from him. And just from there on out, I was a long driver and, and got into the season and, and kind of went off. <laughs> so when you make that drive to that original qualifier, which obviously instills a great bit of confidence in you, are you consulting anyone you're close with at that point? Like, hey, I might want to go try to do this. Did anyone try to tell you you're crazy? Like, what was just like, <laughs> hey, I'm going to go be a long drive guy. Was anyone like, don't do this or hell yeah, go do it? Or did you just like, no, I'm just going to wake up and do it? Like, how did that work? I mean, I was, uh, my cousin, Nathan was up in Fort Collins and we go play golf together all the time. And I, I told him about it and he was like, yeah, you should go do it. Like, I, I know you can hit a golf ball far, like, heck yeah, go do it. And so it was just kind of like, all right, I guess I'm going to go do it. <laughs> so you go through that qualifier, you mentioned like not optimizing the launch angles and all of that. I guess we'll start with the long drive club. Where did you buy a long drive club? Cause these are not normal drivers. They have different yeah. regulations for like someone you see on like tour or something yeah. like that. What, like how did my, how quick was the learning process and how did you actually go about actually getting a long drive club? So back, so I talked about back in 2017, 
when yeah. I went to go try and get into the world championship, I bought a, I bought a long drive club for, I think like $300 off of, off of a website. And that was my long drive club. Um, <laughs> so I just had this long drive club stashed in my bag, uh, just like waiting around for me to start practicing. Okay. So yeah. you get it. Yeah. I mean, you're six, seven, are you, I've never had this problem, not even close to it. Fortunately, did you have to get specially fitted golf clubs when you just played golf or are you go with the normal standard shaft links despite being six, seven? Uh, they put, I, I got like two inch plugs in them. Okay. So it just makes it, it kind of makes it a little longer. So I imagine that's what this is basically on steroids. So you get this long drop when it comes in the mail, you're like, Jesus, this thing's like a pogo stick or something with the, with the head on it. Like, what was it like swinging it for the first time? (laughs) I mean, it's, so it's about, so everything is PGA regulated. So they have this new rule in the PGA now that if a a course so decides that they want to implement a 46 inch rule, they can, but the rule is unless they apply that rule, you can use up to 48 inches. So that's how long we use. That's I use a 40 inch, a 48 inch club. I think pretty much everyone else does. I bet there's very few that use shorter um, trying to get as much leverage as we're getting, but it's, it's the head that's making all the difference. It's, it's the three degree head compared to a nine or a 10 degree head. So everything you hit has to be hit up on. You can't hit down on it like you would a regular golf club. So when you go to that qualifier and you said, I can do this, take me through what turns you into a long drive pro, because as much as we joke about it, it's a real art to it. It's a professional sport yeah. for a reason. Guys don't yeah. just go out there that are big, you know, drink 12 beers and like, I can rip this driver. There's actually like a technique to it. This is how this happens. Like, how did you learn that? How did you, I guess the best way to ask it, how did you get serious about becoming a long drive professional? How did that happen? For sure. Um, when I went out to go see Bobby Peterson, starting to understand the aspects of what it takes to do what us long drive athletes do is absolutely just unbelievable. Like with how fast we're moving, if you're off a decimal of a degree, that ball is sent completely opposite ways from where you're trying to hit the ball. I mean, it's just, it's just the speed at which we're pushing is like it's chasing perfection of a swing, if, yeah. if you would say so. Yeah. So it, it just like enticed me to be like, oh, like something I can work to be perfect at, you know? Yeah, it reminds me a little bit. I was watching some of your videos and I was looking up like some research on it. It reminds me of that like Minicus driver, that Minicus like gimmick club that Aaron Oberhauser <laughs> plugged a few years ago, where if you do one thing wrong with your swing, the driver collapses. It's like, no, you're facing like absolute perfection here. So you decide you want to do this pretty seriously. Yeah. Take me through the learning process of learning how this works, the long drive circuits. Like how, like what was, how did you approach like, okay, beyond the swing and learning how to do the swing, how do I get into this? How do I do all of this? Take me sure. through what that's like, like getting into becoming a long drive pro. For sure. So I, I mean, like I said, so Bobby Peterson's my coach now. Yeah. And, and as soon as I went out there, he was like, I want you on my team. Like, so he I'm, saw potential clearly. Yeah. So he was like, I'm going to teach you everything there is to know. Like with how bad my swing was and the speeds I was producing, he was like, he was like, I could, I might be able to make this guy the fastest man in the world. Like with how tall he is and the athleticism, yeah, you might be able to push speeds we've never seen before. So it was like it was like heck yeah, I want to try this. And so he started fitting me in the clubs. You know what shaft, what 
what strength of shaft you want, you know, the stiffness of it. Um, how do we change your head, like settings on the head? Because now they have like the tips where you can change it to a draw, plus one, minus right. one, all this different stuff. Um, how like the eight power points in a swing, like the the reach you want to get on the way back, the height you want to get on the way up, how your legs are supposed to transition into the downswing so that they can explode back up when your club is through the impact zone. It was just like so many little tiny details that you had to, it's like pitching mechanics, you know? Yeah. If, if you don't get into a certain position, it messes up the next position. And it was just learning the process of all these positions. And, you know, the, the nine different shop sh shot shapes, if your face is closed, if it's open, if you make impact on the inside of the club versus the outside, it's just so many fine little details. Well, so that's pretty crazy. So it sounds like if you had not gone and seen this guy and he saw yeah. potential in you and he told you to piss off or whatever, this would never have happened. Is that fair? Yeah, pretty much. I, I'd say that completely. So when you're hitting balls in front of this guy, do you know that's like a tryout or are you just like, I right, whatever, I'll go do this. Like you told me briefly how you got hooked up with him, but I'm just curious, like, did you know, like what was on the line at that point? You're just like, I'm just going to rip this and see what happens. And like after when he told you all that, we were like, okay, we might actually have something here. Like, what was that day like? Yeah, so I didn't. I, I spent three days with him. Okay. So I I flew in. He he let me stay in his house, um, and we'd literally wake up, go to the hitting facility. How did he hit. find you again? Like, if he's willing, I, to I called him. him. Uh, I literally, it was like I'd heard about this guy. He coached Kyle Berkshire. He coached all these other long drive athletes. It was, it was like if you wanted to get into long drive, this was the guy to go see. Did he need any proof of concept? Did you have to send him anything, or just the fact that you were six six had a mean slap shot through <laughs> a baseball pretty well? He was like, "Yeah, let's try this." Yeah, pretty. It was, it was kind of like. You know, anyone can tell you they swing X miles per hour, but you, you're not going to believe it until you see it, you know? Yeah. Um, like, we had a good 30-minute conversation on the phone, you know, talking about clubs. I didn't know anything. Um, we had met at that regional qualifier prior um, okay. to me giving him a phone call. So it was like he had seen me swing before, um, but it was, it, it was completely a tryout, yeah. It was to see if I could make it onto his team and and basically actually have him as a coach because he doesn't want to just coach anyone, you know. Um, he wants he wants to have a team specific to you know becoming a champion. He wants to he wants to coach champions. And uh, it was like I I we literally go to sleep, wake up, hit, eat lunch, hit, hang out, go to sleep, wake up hit, eat lunch, hit, and it was just a cycle. And it was, it was just testing me like, Hey, can he learn this stuff that I'm trying to teach him? Does he have coachability? When I tell him to swing faster, can he actually do it? Uh, is he actually going to work hard enough? Like, like find out my personality by pushing me there to see if I'm actually going to be the person that leaves and goes and works and, and tries to better my craft instead of just leaving and, and you know doing nothing with my life yeah no that's pretty awesome and I imagine to some degree the adversity you would face as a baseball player you're like no dude like I can handle this like yeah. I'm all in on this this is oh, completely yeah. nothing this is just kind of gravy I'm excited to be here like did he pretty quickly learn that like no no I, I can do this I can take coaching I, I'm in on this oh yeah it was it was like 
uh, it was pretty much like, dude, you don't have to worry. Like I'm, I'm here. And, and at the time I was substitute teaching. So I had a very lax schedule. Um, so I was able to make it out there, you know, once every couple months. So take, I derailed you a second ago. Now that you have all this, I imagine he offered you a little bit of guidance, but the, from the research I did, like I was expecting to have maybe like a, a second tier league, a third tier league, a first tier league, but it does sound like, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I know nothing about this in yeah. terms of long drive professionals and getting to the one that, you know, they show on ESPN two and stuff all that. Right. It's basically just going through a series of qualifiers. And if you get high enough, you get on that grand stage. What uh, Give me the infrastructure of pro long drive competition. Okay. Okay. So there's a pro division, a amateur division, a senior division and a ladies division. Okay. So as long for the pro division, literally you could walk in, buy a pro division pass, pay your entry fee and you're a professional long driver and you can compete with the professionals. Wow. Now, how well you're going to compete, um, that, that I don't know, but anyone can go sign up and be a professional anytime they want. Anyone can go sign up, be an amateur. Anyone can go sign up and be a professional ladies. Anyone can go sign up and, well, I guess for seniors, you gotta be over a certain age, but literally anyone can go sign up and be a professional. Now, how you compete, that's up to your, up to your talent. Um, but the way, it's, the way it's built is for anyone to be able to come out and compete. So what are you getting into when you first become a professional long drive champion? I imagine you're not getting in like the highest tier of highest tiers. How do you get into that upper threshold? Do you work your way up through lower events? How do you get to be like on the grandest stage of professional world long drive? So, so the grandest stage I would say is the world championship. And to get into the world championship, you either have to be a past world champion. You have to, had been in the top 16 from the previous year, or you have to qualify for the world championship. So to qualify for the world championship would be making it through a local qualifier. Then once you make it through a local qualifier, you have to make it through a regional qualifier. And once you make it through that regional, then you make it into the, then you get your bid for the world championship. So it's really not that different in a lot of ways than pro golf. Like I got a couple of buddies, um, you know, you driving to Salt Lake actually brought up a memory of, I have a buddy named Hayden Buckley, who is a uh, mini tour player for a while, went to Canada, got his break on the Corn Ferry Tour. He wins as the third alternate, last man in the field, literally shows up with his clubs on Thursday at an event in Tampa, gets in the field, wins the tournament, and now he made 1.8 million bucks on the uh, PGA Tour and is now a second year PGA Tour player with actually some preferred status. And like that meant when you were talking about like I'm driving eight hours to go do this, like in the back of my mind, like some people would be like, what, what is this guy actually doing? But you're like, that's actually what it takes to get into this, like to having yeah. the self-belief, even when you don't have money yeah. or you don't have like the stature. That's how this all starts. It's not that different than other levels of golf. So and so in the same thing, like you can turn pro if you have a two handicap and pay the fee and wear pants right. and all that. Right. But you don't really stand a chance unless you're a real pro. Same sure. thing with the U.S. Open. I could go qualify for the U.S. Open. I could go to a local qualifier. Guess who's not getting through the local? This, <laughs> well, like, and then you go to sectionals, and then you, if you go to sectionals, you get through, you're in the U.S. Open. It's right. the same process, but you obviously have to be like a real dude. So for you sure. start doing all these. 
How many, I guess the next thing I'll ask, how many events are there a year? Like obviously the world championship is the yeah. biggest deal, but yeah. like where else can you go hone your skills, make some money and all of that if it's not the world championship? Take me through how that works. Yeah, so there's nine events a year. Okay. One of them being the world championship. So eight regular events. Can um, you get into the other eight without any other qualifications or do you have to yes. qualify? So the other eight, anyone can sign up. Okay. The world championship, you got to make it through the qualifiers and everything. Okay, so what was your biggest break as a world long drive pro so far to where you're like, okay, I can actually do this? I saw in your uh, Instagram bio or Twitter you were the rookie of the year. Yeah, on yeah. Is that correct? Like, what? Take me through that. How does that happen? What did you do? Yeah, so um, so out of the eight events, I think I placed in the top eight in five of them. And then in the world championship, I, pl- I placed in the top eight as well. So um, you got to the world championship. Yeah, yeah. So I qualified. First try? Uh, sorry? First try? First like, try. Getting... Yeah, wow. yeah. Hell yeah. yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So uh, so I, I think the first event of the year was in Mesquite. I placed in the top eight. Second event was uh, Florida. I placed in the top eight. Then we came back to Mesquite. Didn't do as well that one. I think that was top 16. Um, and then Memphis, top 12. And just like down the board, kept placing really well. And uh, so I guess I should, in, in a weekend, on Friday, there was a local qualifier. So locals try and make it through on Saturday. So these are at the regular events. Yeah. Uh, at the eight regular events. Basically like a Monday queue at a PGA Tour event. Right. Right, exactly. Saturday is the regional qualifier. So one person, one to two people will move on to the world championship. And then the ladies and the seniors and the amateurs. And then on Sunday is the pro division and it's just the professionals on Sunday. So that's, so that's where you go to try and make money. So you make, you put in like a $600 entry fee and the hundred percent of the pot goes back to the field. So like the top 12 get paid. So you as a pro, do you get at the other events, get to bypass the qualifiers and you just perform on Sunday? Do I, is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so anyone can go perform on Sunday. Like you just, you just buy in to be a long driver, you pay your entry fee and you can go compete on Sunday. Okay. So you've been doing this like a year and a half. It'll be two years in August. At what moment did you felt like, okay, I am good at this. I belong. Because I know you had the thing in North Carolina with your coach. Yeah. You're like, okay, I can actually do this. But yeah. at what point on the professional stage were you like, okay, I actually belong. I'm good at this. I can compete with anybody. Yeah, yeah. that was that was that first tournament of the year in Mesquite um, when I placed in the top eight on Sunday. It was just like, oh, yeah, like I can do this. If I'm, if I'm placing in the top eight in, in my first event, like I, I don't – Obviously, I have to keep working, but I'm right up here with all these guys. So next thing, take me through the structure of a world long drive tournament, not the qualifiers and all that. But in terms of how this is scored, how you do well, take me through how that works. I have a general idea from watching it through the years. I researched a little bit, but you would know obviously way better than I do. How does this work? Okay, so the world championship is 128 uh, players. So we get split up into eight groups of 16. So out of those eight groups, you have – so there's the four and four, and the top eight players from the 16 players move on to the next day. So the eight groups eventually moves into four groups, and the way you place in the top eight is is in that group you have five sets, 
And in those sets, you will face everyone one time. So you're hitting four people at a time. And whoever gets first gets 200 points. Whoever gets second gets 100. Whoever gets third gets 75. And whoever gets fourth gets 50. And if you go out of bounds on all your six balls, you get zero points. So out of all those five sets, you get your points. And then that's what determines your top, your top placement. Okay, so it, that, that's another interesting piece of it. It becomes head-to-head for a little bit, right? It's all head-to-head, right, actually? Right, it's, it's four guys hitting at one time at so all So it's time. like match play. So it's head-to-head. You mentioned the points aspect of it. When you say sets, does that mean one ball, you get one swing? So a set is two minutes and 30 seconds, and you get six balls. Okay, so head-to-head, you're facing another guy in your group. You yep. get two minutes and six balls, and however the points shake out versus that other guy in the six balls determines whether you win or not. Correct. So your your farthest yardage determines if you get first, second, third, or fourth, and then you get points, and then you get points through your five sets. Okay, so I'm trying to understand this. So it's it's not literally <laughs> mono mono. It's no four. no. It's four guys at one time. And you need your longest ball to be better than the other four out of the six. Then the other. Th- okay. Okay. All right. This is confusing. I know it's really hard. No, no, but we're talking about, this is good. All right. We got four guys hitting at one time and this is a set. So you have four guys. This is your one set. The farthest drive out of those four guys gets 200 points. The second farthest drive out of those four guys gets a hundred points. The third farthest gets 100 or 75 points, and the fourth farthest gets uh, 50 points. Okay, so that, that makes sense. So, sec, so you do these five sets. So, if yep. it's a group of 16, you're actually going to compete against the, some of the same guys multiple times in just different groups. It's actually formatted so that you face every single guy one time. Okay. How does yeah. that work? 16 people, but five sets. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I, I honestly, like, I wish I could show you a picture of it, but it's literally like you can see group one and you can see all their names across and it's four guys across and then group two, four guys across group three and then group four. And then it goes into the next set where you have four groups again. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So getting into the mechanics of it and how all of this actually works, you're obviously trying to get one huge ball what is the value of having multiple pretty good ones versus going OB five times and then just having one where you nut it and you know it'll hold up? How do you balance that when you swing? Um, I mean, it's always good to get one in. I mean, yeah. there's plenty of times when guys go OB and it's like, if I would have just got one in, I would have gotten second place, you know? So it's, it's literally how much confidence you have in your percentage of swings. And it's very dis- dictated on, on wind conditions. And that's why they do it in groups in four people hitting at a time, because then that wind situation is the same for all those guys. Because wind could switch in the matter of a second. Yeah, absolutely. So, so if all those guys are competing together at the same time, instead of just like one guy going at, the, get, going at a time, then it evens the playing field for everyone. So when you mentioned, so earlier you said first event, you go top eight. So that Mm -hmm. means you got out of your group, got to the final piece of it. Is that four groups again, or is that mono-e-mono, or is that all eight of you 
Like, take me through when you get right. out of here, what happens next. So, so usually in those Sunday events, there's 64 guys. So they'll have whatever groups. that is three. Gr- I think they do three groups of 16. Yeah. yeah. So they four. do three groups of 16. Four. I'm a bad math guy. You I know. am too. I'm, I'm not thinking. Four we'll groups of 16 because two would be 32, two more. Okay. Would be- yeah. Okay. There we go. Okay. So there's four. Top eight move on from each group that moves into two groups. Top eight move on from those groups that moves into one group of 16. Top eight move on from that group that turns into one group of eight. And then you go, you split that group in half and you go four and four. And the two longest out of those four turn into a group of four. And then the two longest out of that turn into a group of two. And then it's mano y mano and the farthest drive wins. So when you place top eight at your first event, when does the pay start? When do you start getting paid? Pay pay starts at top 12. So you're at top eight. You know you're getting a check. You're just yeah. like, how much money can I make doing this? He <laughs> is to get but like no, and seriously, it's almost like making cuts on the PJ tour. Like the the key is just to get to that top 12, like you right. said. No, and then just improve your sets. That's basically like making a cut. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So you get top eight at your first event. I'm just curious, as much as you want to disclose, like, what is the pay like? Like, what is it actually like being a long drive spread? I mean, okay, so the only – the entire pot is literally the entry fees of, of the guys who enter the tournament. So if, so if 64 guys enter, it's $600 a piece. So whatever that is, and then that's placed into the top 12. So at this point, I'm looking about – That's 38 grand, though. 38 grand yeah 38 and a half, right. yeah. so then it trickles down as you get farther to 12 so first is making way more than 12th places obviously sure um i think that tournament i think i made like 1500 bucks or something like that but if you make like five grand in a weekend that's a pretty good living oh yeah, yeah. you go win the tournament you're very happy yeah so the, i imagine the winners what probably getting 25 of that and then if you get like top five i don't know like 10 grand five grand something like that point being like if you if you place like top six top seven that's a pretty damn good you know, yeah. couple of days oh of work. yeah oh yeah for sure okay so before i get too off in the weeds of this and keep you till like nine o'clock at night here the swing <laughs> i noticed on your swing when you were looking when you were swinging and i looked at some of your uh instagram and tiktok videos you rip through it and your hips get through it. And you basically take like a full turn to the left. One of my favorite like satire accounts in golf is that club pro guy who like is basically just a spoof club club pro online. His content's hilarious. He does that, but like unironically, but like in long drive is the whole name of the game, getting your hips through the golf ball. Like take me through a normal golf swing versus a long drive golf swing. Honestly, there's not much more to it other than hitting up on the ball instead of hitting down on the ball. Okay. You can make whatever, like that big fly open thing is a pro like that's complete. That's the wrong thing to do. That's all oh, really? like, that's just, that's literally just the end of my body moving as fast as I possibly can. And that's, that's the output of it is my leg flying open like that. Sure. Um, but if you're in like a money game and a member guest or something, you're not doing the <laughs> leg fly open, right? Like that's just basically to emphasize all the power is what I'm getting at. Right. Right. It's just, it's literally an output of power. That's all it is. Okay. So that makes sense. So the technique of it, what did you have to learn versus your normal golf swing about what actually goes into making a long drive swing? Staying back behind the ball 
and letting your letting your body do the same thing, but still staying behind the ball instead of being on top of the ball. Okay. Yeah. So, and, and getting higher hands. The higher the higher your hands, the better. So in golf, you obviously <coughs> the kind of the traditional sense is if you play a draw, the ball goes further. You know, right. but that's not you guys are having to carry it all this way. So that's not actually necessarily always ball flight. Because, you know, a draw rolls out further. It's a little bit harder to control versus a fade, right. particularly if you have it under control, a little bit of like a wipey fade. You're not rope hooking it and you can kind of control it better. What is the advantage? Do all guys play draws? Do some guys play fades? How do you have to decide some of that? So that's that's the cool part of long drive is that okay. that is so grid specific and weather specific. Okay. Like if it's if it's a downwind condition, then you want to spin the ball more. If it's a into the wind condition, you want to spin the ball less. If it's right. a left to right wind, you want to hit a draw or hit a fade. If it's right to left, you want to hit a draw. Um, so, like, literally, this sport comes down to inches because everyone's trying to hit the perfect shot for the situation. You know, elevation, you want to hit a higher launch angle, lower elevation, uh, the type of grid. Is it, is it a hard grid? Do you want it to roll out? Is it a soft grid? Is it only going to carry? And when it hits, it's going to stick. So it's it's optimizing what the ball is going to do in all of these situations and noticing it at that second so that you can hit that shot. Yeah, because, I mean, even if you play a tournament in Mesquite, Texas versus like Phoenix, Arizona, the air is different. You mentioned the wind can change in an instant. So you're having to learn all of this on the fly. So I imagine the, the couple videos I watched, I think you move the ball. You're right-handed, so you would move it right to left, mostly a draw. But you have to be able to have a fade in the bag too, correct, and change it. Oh, yeah. You, you got to have every single shot there is in the bag because you. it's, it's literally if you what don't have a there? shot. What else is there? It, it, it's outside of draw fade. Draw fade, you could do a left path draw, you could do a right path draw, you could do a left path fade and a right path fade. So is a left path fade like a glorified pull hook with some with some like like air to it? You mentioned like a left path fade, but traditionally in a golf sense, you're right-handed, so you'd move the ball right to left. When you say a left path fade, uh left path draw, what does that mean? So a left path draw would be literally so if this is the line and a draw is gonna come this way around the line. It would be starting the ball on this side of the line, but still hitting a draw. And keeping it on the grid. And keeping it on the grid. So then it becomes angling your body correctly because that spin's going to be the right spin for that situation. That's nuts. So that's pretty crazy. Yeah. On on some of that, like th- th- that's the piece of it where it's like, oh, I could go be a long drive guy. It's like, actually, not really how that works. You got to actually right. have the kind right. of skill to do this. How long did it take you to master all of that? The conditions, what shots to hit? What was the learning curve like? So the learning curve, at first I was just like power, 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 power. How fast can I hit a golf ball? And then I got beat by a guy of lower speeds than me because he could flight the ball better than I could for that situation. And that was like, ding, 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 learn how to hit a golf ball. (laughs) Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So that's kind of yeah. crazy because you don't think about it. So you, we mentioned the driver regulation size, teeing up wise. What is yeah. teeing it up on how high you tee the golf ball up as opposed to the like in, in proximity to the face versus yeah. what you would do in normal golf? What is the process of teeing it up? How much science or thought goes into how high you tee the golf ball up? For sure. That's 
that's very dependent on the person. Um, a lot of people in long drive, you see them put it up on that four inch tee and get it way up there. Me personally, it just doesn't feel comfortable and I feel like I'm hitting under the ball. So like I, I tee the ball up very similar to what I would play golf with. Um, but that's just because for me, that's the angle at which when my club path is coming down and picking back up on the ball, like for me, that's what's going to optimize it compared to someone else. Do you know you just absolutely nutted one when it comes off the face or do you have to actually watch it go? Oh, no, I know. I know. it. When I hit it, I know. <laughs> so do you guys get penalized if it's on the grid? Does it matter at all accuracy wise? Because I used to see one and maybe I just completely made this up. There would be like a straight line in the middle. Is accuracy toward the middle of the grid at all factored in? No, no, it's just in the grid. All, okay. all that matters is in the grid. So keeping it on the grid, like you played, you mentioned tournament, Mesquite, Memphis. Again, that's different than Arizona. How do you factor in air conditions? Oh, for sure. Uh, yeah, we had one in Utah compared to Florida, where it's like elevation and dryness compared to no elevation and wet. Right. Um, I mean, that is that's like me. I rely on my coach for that kind of stuff because he can do all the math to plug in. Hey, if the wind is this situation and and we're in this grid with the humidity, you want to launch it at this angle with this spin to know at this speed it'll carry this far. And it's it's a lot of math that I don't know how to do. So I'm fortunate that I have a coach that can do it. <laughs> is he at the events with you? Yeah, yeah, he is. So he goes to the events with you. What's the coaching regulations like? Because, you know, they've had all this back and forth on the PGA Tour about, like, caddies not being able to stand behind you. Obviously, like, the top-ring guys will fly their swing coach in for a couple of stuff a couple of times a year. What can your coach tell you throughout a competition and not tell you? How does that work? I mean, honestly, I think he could say whatever he wanted. If he wanted, if, if he wanted to stand right behind me and tell me something, I think he could. I don't think oh, there's really? any regulations to that, yeah. Here's another great question. What's the drug testing policy like at these deals? <laughs> there is no drug testing policy. So you so, can get uh, on the gas and be fine? I mean, right now, because we're not on TV, there's just not enough money in the sport for there to have funding like that. So it's it's kind of one of those situations. Because it used to be owned by the Golf Channel, and it was called World Long Drive. Yeah. And then COVID canceled that. They dropped it. And a couple guys who were like, we got to keep this going, uh, started the Professional Long Drive Association. And and now they just like hold tournaments and and literally do it out of the goodness of their heart. <laughs> Which is kind of bullshit because I went on this rant with uh, my buddy. Oh, it Mark is. And Braden Thornberry too, because the golf channel will play like the senior tour events. And I'm like, I'd rather watch a Cornberry tour event or a long drive championship than watch Bernhard Longer win his ninth whatever <laughs> senior Absolutely. tour event like all the time i would way better watch that kind of stuff and i know i'm not alone i'm a pretty big golf fan i'm pretty into the sport i can't be the only one that's like i don't want to watch the senior tour i'd like to watch the <laughs> one fairy event where nine guys are in contention to change their lives or a long drive championship yeah. like so is that in discussion do you know if they're going to try to get back into tv because that's it's incredible tv you don't have to watch the other kind of mundane aspects of golf you just yeah. like you get to watch guys rip it yeah so uh Literally all of us are just crossing our fingers right now, but, you know, Bryson becoming a part of it. Um, there's talks of possibly getting like a pre-show to live. Um, I know someone, a company went out and purchased uh, the rights to world long drive. So there's talks of that getting started back up. Um, I know they're trying to get sports betting on it for DraftKings. 
Um, so there, it's just like hope, like no promises and all hopes, just like praying that someone will pick it up and make it big again. What was it like being at the World Long Drive Championship, the World Championship, your first time through? Was there nerves? Because that's oh, yeah. the big deal. That's what used to be on TV. Like, what was that like for you? Oh, yeah. I taught my first ball. Really? My first, yeah. My first ball, I think, went like 25 yards. <laughs> Did they announce it? They measure it and they're like, this one went 29. <laughs> no, nothing like that. But uh, but everyone knew it. <laughs> Give me some big names in the sport because I know Jamie Sadlowski is a famous one. There's a guy yeah. that actually my uh, home club I grew up uh, going to. I forget the guy's name. He's from Mississippi. He actually drove the first green at CCJ from the 19th old patio, which is one of the craziest things I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, absolutely nuts. Who are kind of the titans of the sport? Yeah, uh, number one is definitely Kyle Berkshire, uh, Martin Borgmeyer, um, who else? Ryan Winthers, um, Eddie Fernandez. He's the senior senior champion. Um Let's see here. Who else? Colton Casto. He's got this big, crazy step. Um, have you ever seen the swing man? You know who the yeah. swing man is? Yeah, the swing man. He comes out. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of big names. So you're enjoying this. You're doing this. As we kind of wrap up here, do any of these guys do it full time or do they all have other jobs? Um, I'd say it's Kyle and Bryson. Kyle, Kyle Bryson and Martin. Martin. Martin, because he's so has such a social media presence. Yeah. And then Kyle built up his YouTube and has a bunch of sponsorships through like Cobra and everything. Uh, and then Bryson's Bryson. We all know he's got money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. God, thanks to Greg Norman for that one. You know, for you, like sponsorship wise, what like are you trying to reach out to sponsors and stuff like that? Because again, I have a buddy like Buckley was on the PGA tour um rookie and like he kind of had like a semi-clothing deal he had a bank that kind of went in and out as a sponsor and went in between now he's got a couple of sponsors are you trying to are you at that point yet where you're trying to get people to sponsor you yeah yeah so Callaway so I've been told that if I made the top eight that that it would be easy for me to get a club sponsorship and uh Callaway gave me a head right before the world championship Hell yeah. And and shook my hand afterwards and said, we'll keep in touch. So I'm hoping I'm hoping that leads to something. But it, we'll see. We'll see. That's awesome, though. I mean, that's a hell of a start. So for you, you've gone through this entire journey. You found this long drive passion. I skipped the part about Sacramento, I guess. How'd you get to Sacramento in the sales job? Because clearly it seems now you're at a very good equilibrium, <laughs> right? You're getting to do this. You enjoyed this. But you have a nice sales job that allows you some flexibility as well. How did yeah. you get to the Sacramento piece of it? Yeah, so like I said, I came out here training for baseball at the Optimum, Optimum Athletes. Yeah. Um, and I was substitute teaching, and then COVID happened. So uh, I actually started working at Lowe's. I was working in the garden department in Lowe's. And then uh, finally, season started back up. COVID end, well, kind of ended. And then um, yeah. I, was, I got a job with Titan Energy selling solar and door knocking for solar. And uh, I was substitute teaching and door knocking for solar. And it was one of those situations where I was like, gosh, I, I think I'll do anything other than this. And just start job searching and, and, and landed myself with the E&J job. 
Yeah, I had the same deal when I moved out to Dallas. You'd get all these, like, they'd be like, we want to interview you for a marketing job. And then they'd interview you and they'd be like, you have the job. Like, we did one Zoom interview. Like, well, it's face-to-face -face <laughs> marketing. And you're actually just selling, like, direct TV to people in Walmart. You're like, oh, that's not actually what they told us this is going to be. <laughs> As you continue on this, you have the great, you got a good job. You got a good setup. What do you want this to be? You're enjoying the long drive aspect of it. Yeah. Obviously, you're very athletic. Like, yeah. are you just enjoying the ride? Like, what kind of aspirations do you have for this? Because it's a very cool thing to yeah. do, whether it's on the side or your full-time gig. Like, have you thought about what you want this to be? Um, I, I Honestly, I want to be the fastest man in the world. I think that'd be the Love coolest that. thing ever. If I, if I could take down everyone else and go faster than everyone else, that'd be freaking awesome. Um, and you know, people, people are telling me it's possible with, with my height advantage and some athleticism and, and willing to put in the work. It's, it's, it's a possibility. Have you talked to the upper level guys, the guys you mentioned earlier, like, do you rub shoulders with them at all? Like does oh, yeah. that inspire confidence or are they kind of like the, uh, we'll call it the Bryson to some degree where it's like, oh, I don't have time to talk to this kid. <laughs> that actually like rubbing shoulders with the people at the top of the sport. No, it was cool. Like Bryson's a cool guy. Everyone's a cool guy. Um, it was kind of like once, once I kind of proved myself and placed myself in the top eight in a few tournaments, it was kind of like everyone, everyone was like, all right, we got, we got another dude up here. Have you talked <laughs> to Bryson? Yeah. Oh yeah. We've had plenty of conversations. Really? Yeah. He, I mean, I hit right next to him. <laughs> That's nuts. So I'm trying not to get myself in trouble here. What's his <laughs> thoughts on weightlifting now? He's now going back to being slim. Like, what's his? Yeah. Are we going to see a skinnier Bryson on the long drop thing? What is actually? Actually, oh, no. better ask you. What is Bryson actually like? Because I think he's the whole like. I have all the same clubs. I'm a physicist. I'm smarter than you. I think he brings that some of that on himself. <laughs> but he does seem like, in a way, a genuine guy in his own way. If that makes any sense. What is, yeah. from your perspective? What is he like? I mean, it helps to be taller than him because he that's what he always you can tower up. over him. What's up? Yeah, he'd come up to me and be like, dude, I just wish I was as tall as you. <laughs> that's amazing. But he's just he's just a wiry, energetic kid, man. That's that's all it is. Is he's a kid that's having so much dang fun and has all the necessary means to have as much fun as he wants. And I, I don't know, I thought he was a really good guy. He he gave all the respect to me. So how much fun are you having? Oh, so much fun. Like this is, <laughs> I hate to say it, but it's, it's a lot more fun than it's <laughs> makes me <laughs> wish I like, say it a ton. You can definitely say that with your chest. Yeah. 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 So, so when you, I, I got a last couple of questions before we wrap up here because sure. normal golf game, has it suffered at all? Where you no, just normal like, golf game's gotten that much better. Um, really? I got, I got to play TPC Scottsdale. Uh, over Thanksgiving break, went down there for uh, my girlfriend's, went and visited some of her family. And I shot my best round ever, plus seven at TPC Go Scottsdale. And I was like, Hell this yeah. long drive stuff is working now. <laughs> so when you go to, so you're a long drive guy now, when you hit a seven iron from whatever yard did you hit a seven iron for, <laughs> has that changed or do you have to go back to normal golf mode? No, it's just, it's just like learning everything about paths and, and, you know, face to path and launch angles and, and attack angles. It just doing it with a longer club makes it that much easier when you get to a shorter club. So when you go practice, 
can you can't practice at a normal driving range? Where do you go to practice? Because I imagine if you went to your local muni, they'd be like, "What the hell's wrong with this guy? He's going to kill more people in the cart barn." How do you practice? No, I've gotten kicked off a couple driving ranges. That is amazing. Uh, I will never have that feeling in my life. How big of a flex is that? Oh, it's great. It's I feel bad because on one of them, there's like people hitting on the other end, and the sh- they had like the shot tracer, but the shot tracer wasn't in tune completely it was saying i was hitting it like 330 and i was like what's wrong with me and i'm just hitting it like harder and harder and uh and like almost nailed these people on the back of the range and got 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 pretty chewed out but um yeah i found i found a range that has a big dirt field in the back like a 500 it's like a 530 yard range or something and i just go smack balls out there all day when you get booted off a range, is it like the like? Are they civil about it? Is the greatest flex of all time? Like, like are they like, hey man, you got to get out of here. We don't know what's wrong with you, but you're ripping these things three sixty. Well, it's 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 funny because when they're coming up to me and telling me, they're like, like it's really impressive, but you can't hit here. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then I bought like all these credits at this driving range. Cause it was like the closest one to my house. And I was like, okay, like I'll just go hit this one. So I like bought like the $200 credits. So you get like $300 credits out of the $200, you know, and, and you get like 300 credits to balls instead of 200 credits if you pay X amount. So I like, I like get kicked off the range and it's like, well, I just bought all these credits. Like, what do I do? So I go back into the clubhouse and I'm like, Hey, like I need all, I need my money back. I can't hit here. I hit the ball too far. And the guy just looks at me like, what? You hit the ball too far. What's up? Well, you have to tell him you're a long drive guy, right? You can't just be walking <laughs> in there. Like I'm a weekend warrior. I just got too much strength. You have to tell them you're a long drive guy, right? Or are you just like, no, I'm not telling them. No, I don't. I, I could care less if someone knows. I I mean, if they see me hit a ball, they'll know I'm a long driver. But it's just like, it was just like, hey, can I have my money back? And they're like, why? And I was like, uh, I, I hit the ball too far on your range. And they said, I can't hit here. <laughs> I'm sure they do not get that request often as they have a nice one in the bread shop telling them they nut one like 225. All right. So as we wrap up here, how do we follow you? I know how to follow you, but tell the people out there how we follow you because this is a very cool thing you're doing. I hope I can see you on TV in like two years winning a long drive championship. Um, <laughs> like tell, tell the people out there how they can follow you and kind of follow this whole journey. Yeah, it's all, uh, I think all my accounts, TikTok, Facebook, or not Facebook, but Instagram and Twitter, um, it's all Sean John underscore 33. Um, if if you look on pro- professional, I think it's prolongdrivers.com, um, they'll come out with a schedule here in a little bit, and you literally hop onto YouTube and type in prolong drive whenever the event's going on, and it'll pop right up the live feed and you can watch it. What's on your 2022 schedule so far? Or 2023? We're about to end 2022. That's a good question. That's a very good question. They haven't come out with a schedule yet. So, so you're uh, waiting by here. Do you have a celebration plan when you win the whole thing? Can you just get wasted on site? Can you snap a club over your leg? Have you thought about how this is going to go? I don't know. when you're going to win it, but you need a good celebration because that could ruin everything. Yeah, I could do the Bo Jackson snap the club over my head, or I could do the Forrest Gump and just run out of the stadium. Um, no, I haven't put much thought into that. I better think so. 
We'll collab through it. I would like a small piece of credit if I come up with this six. Absolutely. Can you bring some champagne and we'll just, it'll be like NASCAR and we'll just blow champagne. Yes. Fly me out there and I'll just come from (laughs) out of the background and just start dumping champagne on your head. I might need a ladder, (laughs) but we can figure that out later. This is uh, dude, this has been amazing. You've been incredibly gracious with your time. I don't even know if I told you how long I keep you, but I lied. Even if I did, I really, really (laughs) appreciate the time, dude. I'm looking forward to following you. This is going to be amazing. It was great to catch up again, my man, and I'll be rooting for you. Absolutely, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. All right. That is That will do it for our show today. I really appreciate Sean's time. I enjoyed the hell out of that conversation, catching up with him, learning more about the World Long Drive Championships, and I will definitely be rooting him on through this new path in his professional career. Great dude. Just seems like an awesome guy you'd want to go have a beer with, or seven, former hockey guy. You know he likes to put him down. But uh, great guy. What more for you? Uh, we're kind of going to have a weekend podcast. I got a uh, Friday show uh, lined up for, I think, sometime late Friday afternoon. So we'll probably hit you with maybe a weekend podcast, put that out sometime late Friday or Saturday. So be on the lookout for that. It's NIL related. I think you'll really enjoy it. And then uh, we'll be back with more stuff next week. Thanks for listening to this podcast as always. And we'll catch you here in a little bit.